What marketing decision gave us the QWERTY keyboard? The QWERTY. And where in the world is it against the law to smile on July 8th? What? <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and have some fun with trivia. Well, Marsha, we've all heard that colliding typewriter keys gave us the QWERTY keyboard, yes. that strange thing we use yes. when we type anything. I was but there. it was actually a marketing decision, not a practical one, that finalized the design. What was the decision? I didn't know that. I'm trying to remember back to the history. Um... Okay, what was the marketing decision, Bob? Well, we know that uh, Scholes and Glidden, these are the fellows in Milwaukee that came up with the uh, idea for the typewriter, the oh. modern one. The first keyboard that Remington saw when they took that to the company that eventually made it, it was like a piano keyboard. It was a two-row piano keyboard, and the keys were laid out alphabetical. And then it went through all those gyrations where we knew they hired a, a German clockmaker to keep those bars from banging into each other and so forth. Yeah, they would lock because it wasn't well-spaced. So finally, they had this new keyboard. It had four rows of keys, top row being numbers, just like today. Below that were three rows primarily of letters, just like today, starting with Q, W, E. But there was one big difference. In that first row of letters, Q, W, and E were followed by a period a period in the middle of the first row of letters. Really? Where was the R? Where was the R? It was the last key on the very bottom row. Well, anyway, after purchasing the machine, the Remington Company made several changes, including this one. They switched the period and the R keys. Why bring R to the top row? That Q-W-E-R-T-Y-I-O-U-P. Why did they bring that R to the top row? You'll love this, Marsha. Because R is the first letter in Remington? No, because... R was one of the letters in their trade name for this thing, typewriter. And if they bring that R to the top row, the salespeople could impress customers by spelling out the word typewriter using just one row of keys. Oh. So that was the marketing decision, not a practical one, that Remington made to finalize the layout of the QWERTY keyboard. And we've been living with it ever uh, since. Yeah, computers, <laughs> everybody, we all have it. So keep that in mind. You can type out the word typewriter with that row of keys. <laughs> I never would have thought How of valuable that. that is for you today. <laughs> it is. As is this bit of trivia. Where in the world is it against the law to smile on July 8th? Four days after the Declaration of Independence. Maybe it was a British law. Uh, <laughs> you cannot smile about this thing you've come up with. Yeah. Hmm. Why would it be July 8th being a day you can't smile? Was that a, some kind of a religious holiday you had to observe? Uh, not for most people, no. Hmm. Okay, I don't know. What's the answer? It's good old North Korea. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you can, Bob, be sent to a concentration camp. Are just plain killed if you smile on July 8th, which is the anniversary of their former leader Kim Il-sung's death. Oh, jeez. And he, as we know, is the proud papa of Kim Jong-un, the current leader who created this anti-holiday. <laughs> so you you cannot smile on the anniversary of the death. death of his dad. Oh, God. And not only can you not smile, but on this day, you cannot be loud, indulge in drinking, or have a birthday party. No fun. 
my dad died on this day. And believe me, after... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And believe me, after reading that book, The Girl with Seven Names, she escaped from North Korea. You can bet your boots that people are watching to see if you're breaking the law. Anything, any law. To turn you in, yeah. It is really creepy. So, no smiling. All right. Keep that in mind if I ever go to North Korea for that that vacation I'm longing for. <laughs> Do they have a river cruise, a Viking river oh, cruise or something? Geez, no? I don't know. Hey, it was a secret weapon of the Romans, but it was banned by the early Catholic Church. What food are we talking about? Uh, early food banned? Well... The secret weapon of the Romans, but banned by the early Catholic Church. Well, they banned hamburger on Friday. Now, it's not a sin anymore, but they banned the regular... Do they eat it? Uh, it's eaten everywhere today. You love it. Your German family grew yeah. up on this. I don't know. Uh, bratwurst. <laughs> yeah, sausage, right. <laughs> sausage. It became popular in the first place because it was one of the few ways to preserve meat prior to refrigeration. And the word sausage comes from the Latin salsus, which means salted or preserved meat. Julius Caesar used it as a secret weapon. He gained advantages over barbarian armies by <laughs> issuing preserved meats to his army while the enemies lost precious hours hunting game in the forests. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's clever. The Romans liked sausage so much, no festification was considered complete without it. So much sausage was served at feasts, accompanied by hilarity, joy, partying, and drunkenness. Not in North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> that the early Catholic Church associated sausage with pagan behavior, so it banned it. It prohibited sausage consumption by Christians and the rest of the Roman world. Can you believe uh, that? No, no, no. But just uh, like our prohibition experience, there was so much smuggling of the contraband yeah. substance that enforcement of the law was meaningless and the sausage prohibition was stricken <laughs> from the books. Where there's a will, Bob. Yeah, civil uh, disobedience will just make any law a moot point. Is that a sausage in your pocket or <laughs> never mind? Okay, Bob. About 1% of the world's population has supervision, also known as tetrachromacy. What is it? Supervision is somebody observing what you're doing, as in North Korea. (laughs) Oh, this is something else. Okay. 1% of the world's population has this. Supervision? Well, it's not X-ray vision. Yeah, yeah, its scientific name is tetrachromacy. Tetrachromacy. Okay, so this has something to do with colors then. Chrome, Uh, right? mm -hmm, Maybe. So they can see invisible colors? Is that what it is? No. No. You're close, though. Okay, what is it? Although exceedingly rare, this genetic condition allows people to see nearly 100 million colors. Oh, my goodness. Yes, or 100 times as the rest of us see. Did you know you... No, I didn't know that. Yeah, that we have, uh, we can see uh, a million, a million colors. But wow. uh, And not only that, only women have this thing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> this superpower. Tetrachromacy is the result of having four types of cone cells in the retina rather than the usual three. Hmm. Because of the way the condition is passed down via the X chromosome, the mutation occurs exclusively in women. One woman describes her supervision this way. If you look at a leaf, I may see magenta running around the outside of the leaf or turquoise in certain parts where you would only see dark green everywhere. Wow. Where the light is making shadows on the walls, I see violets and lavenders and turquoise. You're just seeing gray. In short, we see colors within colors, and even the tiniest change in the color balance of a particular hue will be apparent to me. Well, I see if there's ever a war between men and women, women could use this as a secret weapon then. 
How so? Well, you could signal each other with colors that men couldn't see. All right. When I'll... the uh, when the magenta appears on the leaves, <laughs> it's time to attack. You know, <laughs> men are just sitting there going, "Huh? What's going on? But, hey, what, hey, what are you doing, babe? What's yeah. wrong?" The force wouldn't be very large, though. One <laughs> percent of the world, and only women have that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay, another loss for guys. <laughs> hey, I got one more thing about sausage here. The reason many of our sausages today bear the names of Roman cities, such as Milano, Romano, Genoa, and Bologna, it's because <laughs> the Italians and the Germans were responsible for developing the modern sausage we have today. They realized how enticing meat could be by blending meats with various spices, creating the different dried sausages. Very interesting, Bob. Can I go now? In other words, you didn't think that was interesting at all. No, I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I do like uh, sausage. Bob, what's the only living thing that resides permanently on Mount Everest? The only living thing that resides permanently yeah, on Mount Everest? Yeah, I mean, Everest. It's, it's up there all the time. Is it a bacteria? No, it's, a, it's, a, a, it's an animal. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, a bird, a certain kind of bird. No. That flies way up there. No? No, no. Like, not a bear. No. Had to climb way up yeah. there. All right, what is it? The Himalayan jumping spider. Oh, geez. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. See, if you go up there, you might get bitten by one of those and have an anaphylactic shock yeah, attack. Okay. Oh, it, God. It's, it's the only known permanent resident on Mount Everest. So it's the Himalayan jumping spider? There is such a thing? Yeah, it makes it one of the highest living species on Earth. You, wow. Aren't you going to ask me, what does it eat up you know, there? What does it eat, Marcia? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question. It's, what does it eat if it's living uh, up there alone? Yeah, well... Apparently, flies and other insects get blown up to the higher altitudes when there's a big wind, and that's what they survive on. Oh, for goodness sake. So they're not resident up there, but no. the spider is. Yes. He's got a house he's, with a postage number and everything yeah, else. Yeah, he's, he's waiting for the wind to come. So the <laughs> Jeez, What kind of life is that? I have to wait for the wind to come <laughs> before I can get my food. I think by its very nature, it's usually pretty windy up well, there. Well, I imagine yeah. so. And you don't want to be a fly going, oh, where am I going? Uh-oh. <laughs> Wow. Hey, Marcia, ever heard of the term completion factor? Well, you mean like when the dishes are done in the house? <laughs> no, <laughs> but it is a term being used by an industry, the airline industry, when they're bragging about what they do. And here, these are the good things about our airline, the completion factor. You know what it means? Mm -mm. Historically, airlines have been ranked by on-time flights, you know, on-time departures and arrivals. But now they're focusing on completion factor. It's the percentage of scheduled flights that are not canceled. <laughs> that what is what so a dubious sick. distinction. Oh, man. Yeah, things that hinder completion factors include bad weather and technical limitations, like the computer problems that Southwest Airlines experienced during the Christmas oh, 2022 holiday was, week. That was a debacle. So that's the new term the airlines are touting, the completion factor. Factor, the percentage of scheduled flights that are not canceled. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't account for what matters to most passengers. Late flights, late yeah. arrivals, late departures. Lost luggage. But the good news is the government does track and publish the number of flights that depart and arrive on time. And I found the website you can go to to find that information. It's bts.gov. The Bureau of Transportation Statistics website. And you know what I've noticed when we travel more and more that they arrive early. 
And that's because they're stretching out their time in the air, so you get the feeling that you're actually ahead of time, but you're just really (laughs) right on time, right? (laughs) I don't know, but as long as we get there safe, that's that's all all I care about. about too. Okay. Remember the touchdown we had in what what state was that? And on the way to Boise, we I think it, it was Minneapolis. It Marcia. was oh yeah, it was Minneapolis. The best touchdown I've ever had. Oh my God, it was barely noticeable. I, I actually thanked the pilot. <laughs> in my years of traveling and business, I used to actually fall asleep and wake up, and we'd already be on oh, the ground. Oh, I know that's you. Yeah, I'm just sitting there terrified, grabbing your arm. But, okay, but you can sleep <laughs> through everything like that. I have two names. Names of months, you know, how did uh, the months get their names? Uh March, where did that come from? That's my birthday month, the Pisces. Uh, March, where does March come from? It gets from the March Ides of March. So it goes back before the Romans. Actually, it is the Romans. They named it. Yes. The Roman god of war was named Mars. And March is the time of the year when military campaigns resumed following the dead of winter. So ah. the mythological god was an obvious source of inspiration to name the month March. Okay. All right, now April, what does April mean? April is. It's when the apes... <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> Let me just give you a little eye roll on that one. Okay. No. <laughs> okay, the Latin word apriar means to open. The spirit of blossoming flowers. And that led to the naming of the month Aprilis. So April means to open in Latin. Okay. Makes sense for flowers. It does. Okay. It does. Okay, Bob. What country has the most lighthouses? Oh, that's interesting. What country has the most lighthouses? Well, let's see. You'd have to have a long coast, I would think, and a rocky coast. So, could be the United States. It had a big, long, rocky coast with a lot of lighthouses on the East Coast. Is that it? You're right. (laughs) No kidding. Okay. We are home to over 700 lighthouses, more than any country in the world. And what state do you think has the most lighthouses? Hmm. Could it be Wisconsin? No. I thought maybe being a Great Lakes state, maybe Michigan or Wisconsin? Michigan. Okay. And why, you say? Because of the Great Lakes and the Rocky Coast. They're on four of the five Great Lakes. That makes sense. Yeah. Michigan is surrounded by four of the five Great Lakes and is home to 130 lighthouses, including the remote lighthouse on Stannard Rock, nicknamed the loneliest place in North America. And those were very lonely places. Uh, The lighthouses were manned by usually a man, and their families would live there. Sometimes the man would die and the woman would take over and be the lighthouse person. What a rock. And some of those places were only accessible by boat to get to them, you know, because they were like on islands. All right, we'll be back with uh, more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We're back. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We do this for the Cedarburg Public Library every week, and it goes out over podcast platforms all over the world. So, Marsha, I've got two celebrities, uh-huh. three celebrities. Now, I can tell you their names now, or I can tell you their names originally, and you can tell me what their names are now, which is what I'm going to do, Marsha. <laughs> tell me who Elizabeth Stamatina Fay is. Elizabeth Stamatina Fay. She's Tammy Fay? Tammy Fay, no. Tina Fay. Oh, really? Yeah, she's she has a Greek middle name and she shortened that. She shortened it to Tina Fay. So Elizabeth Stamatina Fay is her name. Okay. All right. This woman's name is Vera Mindy Chocolingham. Vera <laughs> Mindy Chocolingham. It's not Mindy, is it? Mindy uh Mindy? I'm trying to remember the Indian woman. Yes, she's the uh, comedian. Yeah. 
Mindy Kaling. Kaling. Yes. 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 She uh, noticed that MCs used to butcher her last name or mock it, so yeah. she shortened it. And she also chose to go by her middle name, Mindy. Her mother chose that for her because she watched a lot of Mork and Mindy. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's adorable. All right. And tell me Spike Lee's original name. Jeez. Oh, gosh. I his, his name is Lee. Uh-huh. But his first name is actually Shelton. Shelton. He, he doesn't look like a Shelton. His mother's maiden name is Shelton, so he took that. Uh, she gave him the nickname Spike when he was a baby because he was tough. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I've got one. Where do we get the phrase, holy cow? Oh, that's one I use a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, uh, I used to swear a lot. Then I started using holy cow instead. Um, so anytime I say holy cow, you know I'm actually swearing. <laughs> Keep that in <laughs> holy mind. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> now, that probably comes from India because of the cattle being uh, revered and being, and being sacred, right? Uh-huh, no. Oh, okay. According to how stuff works, actually, it's exactly how you use it. It's called a minced oath. It's when you substitute a kind of maybe similarish sound for a taboo word. Okay. That's why we have frickin' and dang it and shiz. Mm-hmm. In this case, cow is probably a stand-in for Christ. Wow. So the speaker won't take the Lord's name in vain. See, it's the same kind of thing. It is, just exactly why you do it. And I always do uh Oh, fudge all the time. Yes. I had a teacher that used to say that, a literature teacher. She'd say, oh, fudge. (laughs) She said it just like that. It's like, I know what you're saying, teacher. These minced oaths, they find proof of them written down from back in the middle of the 19th century where they saw variations on the holy theme. Is that minced, M-I-N-C-E-D? Yeah, minced, like minced meat. Yeah. I'll be darned. It's called a minced oath. The minced oath. Substituting a similar-ish word for the taboo word. Son of a gun. (laughs) Same thing with son of a gun. Uh Okay. So, Marcia, where can you find a beach known as the Jurassic Coast? I will give you choices here. Uh It's either in South Carolina, Uh Kauai, Hawaii, England, Namibia, or Turkey. Uh, The Jurassic Coast. Turkey. Nope. The Jurassic Coast. The Hawaii. Kauai. No. The Jurassic Coast. (laughs) You're wrong. Okay, it's in England, believe it or not. It's actually Dorset Beach on the English Channel. It's a 96-mile coastline in southern England, and you'll find rock formations from the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods. Really? Hmm. So that's where the Jurassic Coast is, of all places. Okay. I got a question kind of similar. Okay. Where is the lowest point on Earth? In other words, land area that is below sea level. I always thought it was the Dead Sea. It is. Okay. It's 1,412 feet below below sea sea level. level. Yeah. It blows all the contenders around the world out of the water, so to speak. Did you know the Dead Sea is considered one of the oldest health resorts patronized even by Herod the Great? No kidding. Yeah. Anyway, still tourists flock to the shores to float in the sea that is almost 10 times more salty than the ocean. Yeah, you can float because the buoyancy is different there. That's right. And why is it so far below sea level, you ask? Why is it so far below sea level, Marcia? Natural evaporation and the harvesting of sea salt. Hmm. By harvesting sea salt, they've lowered the level of the... Land, land around it. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Wow. It just keeps bringing it down. So they mined it. Yeah. Speaking of mining. <laughs> that was your transition? I'm looking at this item going, I can, I can link mining oh. to this. Okay. <laughs> this is a statistic that should give you some thought. 
Nearly half of the world's reserves of cobalt, that is a mineral essential to the batteries of smart devices and electric vehicles, that's mined in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where more than three-fourths of the population lives below the poverty line. So isn't that three ironic? Fourths, yeah, geez. Where this most precious metal is going, all these smartphones for all these rich people, we're all rich people who have smartphones. Mm-hmm. We might not think we are, but in all these developed countries, that mineral is required from this country where three-fourths of the population lives below the poverty line and works the mines. Yeah, that's just... It's, it's sad. It is very sad. Okay, Bob, which of these cities means Steamy Bay thanks to its geothermal activity? Is it Naples, Italy, Honolulu, Hawaii, Reykjavik, Iceland, Quito, Ecuador? I think it's Reykjavik. Why? Because they have the steamy geothermal features. Yeah, how'd you know that? Well, I'm a man of the world, Marsh. Yes, you are. That's that's (laughs) why I married you. The name of Iceland's capital translates literally to steamy bay or smoky bay Hmm. in Old Norse language, which you probably studied when you were a kid. I studied that in uh, junior high school. The Old Norse. (laughs) The Vikings would have seen the steam that rises from the hot spring in the valley east of downtown Reykjavik That's why they chose the name. Mm -hmm. More than half of the hot water pouring from the city is pure, unfiltered geothermal water that comes straight from the ground. Geothermal. Yeah. So that's the source of heat for a lot of the people is the hot water that comes out of the ground in Iceland. Yeah, more than half of the hot water. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, Marcia, why is it illegal to scare a pigeon in Massachusetts? Well, you know, I was thinking (laughs) about that earlier. Since 1848, it's been illegal in Massachusetts to not only kill a pigeon, but also to purposefully frighten one Uh, from the beds that have been made. I would say it goes back to some horror perpetrated in 1848 by a freaked out pigeon, by kids pooped on a mayor's head or something. No, actually, the law was made to protect hunters because they created beds for the purpose of giving them pigeons a place to nest. Uh huh. Because back in those days, in the 19th century, pigeons were both a food source for residents and used in target shooting, too. So uh- here's what it is. You face up to a month in prison as well as a $20 <laughs> fine. And you're also liable for the actual damages to the owner or occupant of the pigeon beds. (laughs) So whatever you do, don't scare a pigeon in Massachusetts. Okay, it's like smiling on July 8th in North Korea. Okay. Why is the discovery of sudden riches or a big win lottery called the mother load? The mother load, L-O-D-E. I won the mother load. Well, isn't that the name they use for a vein of silver in, in the ground? They call it the mother load. Well, come on. How did you know that? Well, it's I'm a man of the world, Marsha. <laughs> you said that already. <laughs> you don't get to say it twice. Okay. The term mother load comes from the mining camps. A load is a mining term for the vein of metal ore, the discovery of which would be very exciting. But if you add the word mother to it, it means you found the origin of all the veins in the region. Oh. So there's a mother vein, and then the rest all come out of that. And the mother load is literally an abundant source of supply. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it is. It's one that actually makes sense. Okay, Marsha, why is eavesdropping forbidden in Oklahoma? Aha! (laughs) Well, we know where the term came from due to my research a few weeks ago. Eavesdropping. Yeah, it's correct. From people living next to the eaves during a rainstorm and hearing what was going on. Hiding under the eaves. Okay, yeah. Yeah, not get wet. Um... 
Okay, what was the question? Eavesdropping is forbidden in, in Oklahoma. What, why? Because, uh, tell me why. Well, we don't know why, Marcia, but... <laughs> Here's what the state law says. This is 1910. Every person guilty of secretly loitering about any building with the intent to overhear discourse therein and to repeat or publish the same to uh, vex, annoy, or oh. endure others is guilty of a misdemeanor. Uh, it's a dollar fine, so, you know, don't what, worry. It's not too bad. Uh, yeah, You vex me when you're listening to people talking next to us in a restaurant or something. If they're talking about something interesting, I see you tuning into them instead of me. It's, you say vex? I, I say vex. I'm going to give you a dollar fine for swearing now. That's also in Oklahoma. A dollar fine for eavesdropping and swearing in Oklahoma. Oh, really? Yeah, both of them. I'll be dang. <laughs> Notice what I did there? You minced your swear word. I'm learning a lot on this show. You okay. are. Okay. A lot, a lot on this episode. All right. Uh, before I get to my quote, if you're short of cash, you might ask someone to tide you over with a loan. Where does that phrase come from? Tide? Tide me over. I always thought it was tie me over. No, it's tied. tied. Oh, so it has to do with the water being at a certain Ah, height then. Yes, good deduction there. And that's the reason they call it that. Yes. Okay. Well, I guess I don't have to give the answer. I guess not. I guess that's the answer. (laughs) It's a nautical term. When a boat or ship wants to enter a river from the ocean at low tide, it will be blocked by the accumulation of mud or sand that is swept down and accumulated at the mouth of the river. And when the predictable tide rises, the boat can continue on its way, just like the person you just gave them money to, to tide them over. (laughs) And hence the phrase. Tide them over. Yes. You always thought it was what? I thought it was tie you over. Oh, yeah. Going to tie me over. Yeah, that sounds kind of nasty. Well, (laughs) Okay, Marsha. 30 years ago, when video conferencing was still in its infancy, big companies built dedicated rooms in company offices around the world so employees could meet easily without traveling and, and expending all that money. Participants would sit like four abreast facing a wall with a large screen, and we'd see people in another room. Sounds uh-huh. like sounds like the Hollywood squares, but yeah. <laughs> it worked. It worked. It was a brand new way to meet, so new that when I worked for Rockwell in 1992, I had to write a flyer to explain the concept. Oh. <laughs> I titled it, How to Meet in Two Places at Once. Oh, very clever. Yeah. Uh, that was until about 2000 or so when Skype brought video calls to personal computers. Well... Logitech and its furniture partner, Steelcase, have decided they're going to bring those dedicated rooms back. A cozy booth complete with a sofa, a table, a green plant, and a big screen opposite you. (laughs) Who would need these things? Well, you know, it's for the Zoom calls, right? I guess, but can't you do that with just people on different laptops? It's interesting that they would think that's necessary in, in the corporate life. So why do you think Logitech and Steelcase think we need dedicated rooms for video calls? Could it be (laughs) they need to sell more tech gear and furniture? (laughs) I think so. Okay. Call me a skeptic, but until a uh, demonstration convinces me that an immersive video call booth is a better way to meet remotely, I'll do laptop-to-laptop meetings or FaceTime calls any day. All right. I have a quote I really like, and it's from Calvin Coolidge, of all people. Okay. All right. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. (laughs) The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Well, they're probably right about that. Perseverance more than anything. 
All right, if you would like to submit a question or a fact, we'd love it. You can do so by going to our website, theofframp.show, scrolling all the way down to contact us and do it. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia right here on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.